The last time uh, I brought in a book, and each teacher I'm asking to bring in one book that they recommend that speaks to their session, and I brought this one in, The Protestant Face of Anglicanism by Paul Zoll. There's another book that Paul uh, wrote. He writes these very short books, which is great, like 100-ish pages or so. Uh, and another one he put together uh, uh, several years ago while he was here, the dean of the Advent, is called The Collects of Th Thomas Cranmer. Last time I mentioned Thomas Cranmer, I'm betting big money that Zach's going to talk about Thomas Cranmer today. Um, and uh, this uh, book has the sort of collects that he translated or, or wrote uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation and creating the first Book of Common Prayer. So that's all by way of introduction to say that's another one that I highly recommend that's uh, a helpful sort of devotional, actually. Um, uh, and so this is the collect uh, for, at the time, it was the 21st Sunday after Trinity, and I thought it might speak to Zach's lesson today. So let us pray. Grant, we beseech thee, merciful Lord, to thy faithful people, pardon and peace, that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve thee with a quiet mind, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm not going to read that whole meditation, but I just want to read this history here. This is the last of the colics taken from the Galatian uh, uh, sacramentary. Uh, Cranmer changed the original indulgence to pardon because of the medieval abuse associated with the prior term. Galatius's time... In Galatius' time, the Pax Romana, which had made the world secure, was breaking up, hence the plea for the peace, which passeth all human understanding, as that which alone can endure the trials and unrest of the world. This collect is sometimes used in the Church of England to replace the absolution in morning and evening prayer when those services are conducted by a lay reader. Um, and then you can read the meditation, which is full of sort of uh, peasiness. Uh, to it. Um, but today I asked uh, Zach to talk about worship in the prayer book tradition. Zach's our new canon for liturgy and worship, so there's no better person. Uh, and he's studying tons on the topic, has been right now, getting his uh, D-men. Uh, and so I'm really excited to hear what Zach has to say. And all you got to do here, Zach, is flip this on uh, horizontally. Show me where, right there. Is that good? I would love to introduce my wife. This is my wife, Abby. You can always remember we're opposite ends of the alphabet, A and Z. So if you have trouble remembering, she's Abby. Um, I'm sorry I'm in my purple matrix outfit, um, but I, I just, I always end up kind of running over and knowing that I don't have much time to change for the 11 o'clock. So forgive the sort of funny look about me right now. I look like kind of Barney meets, meets Matrix. Um, so I love the prayer book. And what I kind of want this session to be maybe is just an evangelistic battle cry for, for why we do what we do with the prayer book. Uh, and I'm definitely aware of a lot of the liabilities, I'd just say. But I think that the blessings of it outweigh those liabilities. And I'm willing to hedge those bets that way, which is why uh, I want to talk about it today. And I want to first just begin by uh, asking the question of what makes the prayer book healthy and vital? Like what, if we're, if we're a, a tradition, a tradition of, of Protestant Christianity that worships with this book and does all these actions and says all these things, like what makes this healthy and vital? And the first thing I'd say is it's verbal. Um, 
Think about this, especially in our day and age, when we've got these kinds of devices and screens all over the place, all around. We're in a world that's awash in in a, in, in a lot of visual sensory experience. The way we get communicated to is visually. Even our text is done in visual ways. No longer do we just hear, hear and see plain text. We have it sort of memed to us with these pictures, right? And for that reason, I actually think in a countercultural kind of way, but in a way that's healthy for us as human beings, as sociologists point out, it's wonderful that we have a verbal worship service that's based really around words, you know, even as it's accompanied by things that hit our ears like music, uh, things that hit our eyes like the visuals, whether, you know, you're in a tradition that use, utilizes screens and moving lights and those kinds of things, or you're more like us where we have stained glass and actions of the people li- leading the liturgy. It's, it's a verbal, ultimately verbal thing filled with words. And for me, uh, there's no getting around that our worship needs to be verbal, primarily because God has chosen to communicate his most pointed revelation, the revelation that we can bank on is his very word, through words, through words of human beings written down. And so the fact that we have a verbal liturgy is actually, I think, really in line with, uh, with the scriptures. Secondly, we have something that's very tactile. I mean... Again, in our ephemeral day and age, when we're sort of used to looking at words that vanish as we scroll up and may never again be seen, you know, to have something that we come into worship that is grounded in a physical book. Um, you'd be surprised having conversations, um, especially with, there's this, there's this resurgence among younger folks, as they say, and it's a broad brush and probably a generality, uh, just toward liturgy again towards things like the way we worship again. But alongside this is just a desire to, to get past the screens and into physical things. And so you find that the, the hipsters of our generation are really into artisanal, handcrafted this and that, which is why you go to a sandwich shop and if they're trying to be cool and relevant, they talk about handcrafted sandwiches. I think it's a little extreme because I'm just eating a sandwich, right? <laughs> but you get the point. Everything's about handcrafted because we we want in an age where we've got these screens that have sort of vanishing ideas and and ephemeral qualities something that's physical and and grounded that I can work and feel with my hands and that's actually one of the reasons why we continue to worship with a leaflet so that we can have words that we might be able to go to later we can see and won't go away if our phone turns off you know that's part of the reasons that uh it might be great to worship in a prayer book tradition. As I said, too, it's physical. It's physical. And our worship is physical as well. I mean, some people say that the charismatics have all the physical fun. They don't have all the physical fun. We've got some stuff going on in our worship that I think, just like we can learn from them about physicality in worship, they can learn from us. Uh, we have a tradition where there are ups and downs. And some people say that's distracting. What if I, as your pastor, were to encourage you that these actions have lots of good meaning? I was just thinking today, when we were standing right during the off, as the offertory was going forward, we stood up and I had this sense, this is the reason why we stand here is so we can present ourselves, having heard the gospel in response to God's great grace, we can present ourselves and say, Jesus, here I am. Take me. You know, that's the, and when we watch these sort of, dishes going forward and being carried by these folks 
Lord, I, la- I give myself to you. I lay myself down in response to you as a living sacrifice. Romans 12. It's very Romans 12 in that moment. And I'd encourage us, these actions, these, this bowing of our bodies, this kneeling, this up and down, it has a rhythm to it. And that rhythm actually trains us. It's very physical. That's what I love about it. Uh, it's also scriptural. So one of the beauties of what Cranmer was about in getting back to is he just wanted more of the scripture read. It was actually his aim that if you came to worship on a regular basis every week, you would hear virtually the entire Bible read in a given year. That's how the lectionary worked. That's how he wanted it to be. Old Testament reading, Psalm, New Testament reading, and uh, Gospel. He wanted all those things to just wash over the people of God constantly. But even more than that, if you take my prayer book class in in a few short weeks, um, we're going to start diving into how the actual language, the the parts that aren't necessarily Scripture readings of the prayer book, are Scripture too. You'd be surprised at how many places are quotes of or allusions of Scripture. And the amazing thing about the architectural job of Cranmer, taking the received liturgies and putting them in a certain order, is he was wanting to give us prayers that were God's very word to say back to him. What's great about that is, if you think about what worship is, worship is nothing more than God's revelation and our response and kind of cycling through that. If you notice those patterns in worship in the prayer book and a lot of other traditions, actually, worship is that kind of cycle of revelation. God reveals and we respond. The cool thing about us responding by praying the word of God is that we realize that even our response to God's revelation is a gift from him. These aren't our own words. They're actually God's words back to himself. Uh, it's a gifted response, and that's a beautifully, I'd love to explain it more, Trinitarian thing to say. What I also love about it is that it's historic. In a day and age where the church is just trying so desperately hard to be relevant, try to connect with culture in every single way, one of the things that we're losing in our postmodern reality, I'm just talking broader culture, I'm not just talking about the church, is our rootedness. You will find, especially if you talk to a young person today, that they don't feel a sense of historical mooring or connectedness to a history and a narrative. You'll hear people talk about story and narrative a lot. And what prayer book worship does is connect us to something older than ourselves. I will tell you that as we pray these prayers, we are praying things that the church has been praying for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That's amazing. In a day and age where lots of people don't have a sense of anchoredness in a tradition and in roots, we have a root. And think about the fact that as you speak this liturgy and receive these words and pray these prayers, you're praying them with people who have gone before you in the faith. It's what the creed calls the communion of saints. We get to join in that communion together. I love that it's connected with history. It's also gracious. Sometimes I come to worship not ready to worship. I come to worship in a frame of mind that wants to be anywhere else, but God has drugged me there. Maybe for some of you it's your spouse has drugged you there. It's the guilt of your mom or your mother-in-law has drugged you there. Whatever reason you find yourself there, you're not in it to win it. What I love about the prayer book tradition is that it gives me faithful words to put on my mouth when I don't know what to pray. 
And the beauty of the repetition is, which I hope to end with, is that when I'm Monday through Saturday at pains to know how to talk to God, these words come flooding into my soul as things that I can say to him that are faithful speech to my God, given to me in the history. Finally, I'll say this. The prayer book tradition is powerful. And what I mean by that is you read Romans and it says that the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God. There's something very, very powerful about the gospel for Christians and non-Christians alike. And I will tell you that our prayer book is filled with the gospel. It's filled with these cycles that sort of preach the law to the old person and then give the good news of the gospel again and again in these cycles over and over. And that makes it powerful. It doesn't need to be flashy. It just needs the gospel. And frankly, there's a lot of seemingly powerful worship out there that looks moving on the outside, but is very devoid of the actual power of God. When I read the word of God, what brings the power? What brings the spirit down? What ignites the people of God to love him and to serve one another? It is the gospel and the gospel alone. Those things. So, in our brief time together, I hope to leave time for questions. Who knows? I want to do three things today. I want to look at the history of the prayer book to kind of give an overview. I want to look at the theology of the prayer book briefly. And I want to look at the spirituality of the prayer book. And I think that those three things are sort of, if I were to give an overview of it and try to launch you uh, on a certain direction, it would be to talk about these three things. First, I just want to say, I want to demystify the word liturgy because I don't know how many of you have grown up with this word. I didn't actually grow up with it. And I didn't grow up in a tradition that had these kinds of words. Now, liturgy, etymologically speaking, which means in its sort of breakdown of its words and its history, means work and people. Liturgia. You know, it's where we get the word laity from when we talk about the people and not the pastors. Just, you know, the people. Liturgy means, liturgy means work and people. And there's kind of a debate about what, what, whether it's the work of the people or, uh, some people would say the work on the people. And I actually think it's some of both. But what the theology of Advent and Cranmer would like to highlight is that the liturgy is actually God's work on us. Even as we're doing stuff, it is actually God working on us and in us and through us by the power of His Spirit. I'd also just like to say, I mean, liturgy is is a word that we most often throw around when we say we're a liturgical church. It usually means this in common speak. We do things like pray pray responsive prayers and have words written down that we all pray together and have this these kinds of verbal actions. And that's very true of that. But I will tell you also, every church has a liturgy. Every church has a structure of worship is what I mean by that. So whether your structure of worship is welcome, big group of songs to get you all hyped up, and then a sermon, then an offering, and then everybody goes with one more song, or whether your liturgy is more complex like the one we have, it's we're all liturgical here, properly speaking. But kind of on the street, for those who know, <laughs> when we talk about liturgy normally, we're talking about something like a structured order of worship that gives us words of responding to and from God and generally has readings and things and responses like that. All right, not that you should memorize this, not that there's going to be a test. Here are some dates that I just want to blitz through to kind of orient us to the history of the prayer book. 
1549, 1552, 1562, 1749. Because at the time, the English speakers didn't understand the majority of what was going on in worship. And your job was to shut up, pray to God, and let the priests do the work, you know, and show up. It was like, shut up and show up was the rule of worship back then. And it would have been a shock to hear the words of worship in your own tongue for the first time. It was only the educated, the rich, and the elite that could have understood it in Latin. But us poor common folk would come into worship and we have to show up and shut up because we didn't know what was going on. We just knew something magical happened up front and that I could sort of tick off a box and God would think that I was awesome by being there watching that. But for the first time, I was actually able to hear it and pray it back to him. This is extraordinary. Now, this first gift of the prayer book uh, to, to the English-speaking world, I would say that it's been on a trajectory ever since. And whether or not a church is an Anglican church or whether a church is, a, is full-blown charismatic, there is an element of historical, you've got to trace back some of what you do in any English-speaking worship service back to what Cranmer did in 49 and 52. It's pretty amazing the, the trajectory he set the English-speaking world on with the result of this, this, uh, this work. This work was kind of a half measure. Not everyone would agree with this, but this work was a half measure in the sense of Cranmer was in the midst of the English Reformation, and some people were sort of very tied to a lot of Roman, medieval, Catholic practices and superstition. And so 1549, if you read it, would carry with it a lot of things that still felt very Roman to those folks, even though it was English. It was shocking enough and maybe broke tradition enough that some people were just going to be mad that it was in English and not Latin. God's holy language. It was sacred, right? You know, and now Cranmer has given us this contemporary liturgy, uh, you know, that uh, we, we don't like and we rebel to, right? Which is why you have a pretty big revision happening from 1549 to 1552, because in that time, this half measure gave away to something more full. And in 1552, the second English prayer book came out. And it looked different than the first one, especially the communion liturgy. Um, Cranmer's goal in it was largely to increase the way that people approached God, understanding that we didn't approach God by earning merit. We approach God by receiving his grace and responding in love based on grace. That was the goal of the 1552 prayer book. And interestingly enough, I would say that even through these other times, it didn't really change in the United States until 1928. That means up until that point, we had a liturgy that was very close to what Cranmer gave the English-speaking world in 1552. When we go on to 1662, the reason I highlight it is because another major edition of the prayer book came out because what happened in England was that uh, the Puritans took over and the Puritan mindset was all this liturgical stuff 
is just a distraction from our pure heart's devotion to God. And when the Puritans came to power in the 1640s and 50s, they actually banned the prayer book. And there was a time when it was illegal to worship liturgically with the prayer book for about 15 to 20 years in England until Charles I came back to the throne and reinstated it in 1662. Uh, and so this version had a few edits, but again, stayed mostly in the same uh, kind of vein as Cranmer. And it remains so even until the establishment of the United States of America. And all I would say about this is it wasn't a, re a revision, but it was the time when the Protestant Episcopal Church, the denomination of the church that you now sit in, ratified, and you can read about this in the Book of Common Prayer that we have now, ratified uh, the first American prayer book. So it's shortly after the United States was founded, and they started establishing churches in the United States, the Anglican expression of the United States Church, the Episcopal Church, said, this historic prayer book will be ours as well and we're going to make it official, right? Uh, not much changed in it till then, until uh, 1928. Significant American revision happened in this time. Um, this version of the prayer book is probably, if you meet a, a dyed-in-the-wool older um, Episcopalian, who remembers being Episcopalian before 1979, this is the prayer book that they grew up with, that they know and love. Uh, this is the prayer book that they learned the language of being able to offer faithful speech to God. I will simply say that there were some significant revisions that took place here that I think moved us away from some of the reformational gospel-centered ideals of the prayer book. It's not to say it decimated it, but it, they sort of took their eyes off the gospel ball, in my opinion. And I would say that it moved a little further off the gospel ball in 1979, still preserving a lot of what makes the, the language and the prayer book historic and beautiful. But 1979, another major revision took place, a year before I was born. <laughs> um, and this revision uh, set... Episcopal Church on a on a yet another trajectory, and it has been the prayer book that we still use to this day. I will tell you that the Episcopal Church is in the middle of talking about another revision, and some people who have been through this one are kind of exhausted by it all. Uh, but this was the most recent one. I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a little bit. A quick uh, overview of the prayer book. Uh, the prayer book itself, if you just picked it up and looked at its table of contents. It's ultimately uh, a book that contains all kinds of worship services. It contains Sunday worship services. It contains daily services for us to connect with God. It contains weddings and funerals and baptisms, ordinations, and more. It sounds like I'm an 800 number ready to pitch you on something, right? It, you can also get a version with a hymnal for $5 more, right? It's got that kind of stuff in it. Um, it's, I mean, the Book of Common Prayer to Demystify is just a book of ver various sketches of worship services for the people of God to engage in. It's also got what they call historical material, like the Articles of Religion, which I would think is actually more than historical material and is the articulation of our doctrine as, as Protestants. Uh, you know, and it's got some other goodies like catechisms, things to help teach our kids and stuff like that. Um, now, we generally are given sort of three service options for Sunday worship. Like if I'm trying to break down the prayer book and understand why we do what we do at the Advent. It's generally because 
Episcopal and uh, Anglican churches look to three of all the services in here as the principal services out of which we worship. There's Holy Communion service, there's morning prayer, and there's evening prayer. Um, I could talk a little bit more about the distinctions between the two. If you take the class, you'll see it. But basically, when we're worshiping on Sundays, uh, each Episcopal church is choosing if it's on Sunday mornings, uh, between and and through both Holy Communion and morning prayer, which is why you see a sort of flipping and flopping. You'll notice on your on your on your leaflets that you, if you come consistently to one service, it will be morning prayer one week and Holy Communion the other week, and vice versa for uh, eleven and nine. And actually, at seven thirty, it's always Holy Communion every week. And these liturgies are different, but carry the same spirit and the same gospel. And then um, if you come to our five o'clock service, you'll actually see us rotate through Holy Communion and evening prayer, which is pretty sweet. If you also came to one of our Evensong, choral Evensong services, you'd hear even prayer in a beautifully sung version. Now, the 79 prayer book, you'll hear this language if you're unfamiliar. The 79 prayer book offers two options for each of these services. Write one and write two. There's a lot of stuff behind people's, and oftentimes churches um, will identify themselves based on this. We're a right one parish. We're a right two parish. And the reason they say that is because right one and right two are fairly different for, for carrying a lot of the same things. Uh, basically, when the revisers of the 79 book were giving these services to the Episcopal Church, they recognized that not everyone was in agreement about the extent of revision or ready for the fullness of it. So they gave two options. Right one were for the people that uh, they, in their minds needed something a little bit more closer to home. It's the older language. It's got these and thous. Right two is updated colloquial languages. So yous and yours and a little bit words that we might use if we're a bit more conversational in 21st century and 20th century uh, United States. Uh, and I will say that that spirit of putting something in the common vernacular is very much the spirit of Cranmer. Because remember, he was interested in giving worship that the people understood, right? And sometimes it is that none of us, not all of us understand what we're saying when we're saying oblation. Right? <laughs> when we're, when we're calling ourselves worms and miserable offenders, right? Sometimes that language doesn't ring true immediately to our heart. So I can appreciate the spirit. But the other thing is that right two went a little bit farther in moving away from some of the gospel-centered realities of, of the prayer book, which is why for us, being a, pa- a parish that is strongly committed to the gospel, especially articulated through the Protestant Reformation, we're going to be a, a right one parish uh, by by nature. And we don't ever want to sort of wear it as a badge. We just want to say, that's where we hear the gospel more. That's why we go there. That's why we do what we do uh, there as well. So, I want to kind of move on quickly to... Oh yeah, the Advent symbol, right one, that's us. Theology. All I really want to point us to is this, and I think it's still true of the 79 prayer book. The heart of the theology of the prayer book is the heart of the theology of the Protestant Reformation. The heart of the theology of the prayer book is the heart of the theology of the Protestant Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation, the church, and I think it was a move of the Spirit, the church was rediscovering 
what the free grace of God through Jesus Christ's full merit of life and death on our behalf meant. And it meant an overhaul that all these practices, all these things that are sort of making us anxious about approaching God need to be purged so that the gospel again about Jesus and his finished work can be clear. Fun fact, uh, many of us know that it was really Martin Luther uh, who was looked at as a leading early figure of the Reformation. Does anyone know what work was considered Luther's first reformational writing? It's not a common title. It's not the 95 Theses. It's not even um, the bondage of the will. In fact, get this. This is what he titled one of his first reformational work. And this has significance for us as Protestants, for us as prayer book people and gospel-centered people. The title is this, On Seeking Out the Truth in Comforting Terrified Consciences. On Seeking Out the Truth in Comforting Terrified Consciences. The Protestant Reformation wasn't about pie-in-the-sky, ethereal doctrine. It was about I said ethereal, and Siri thought I was speaking to her. Um, It is about, the Protestant Reformation is not about ethereal doctrine. It is about getting to the place where the Word of God can comfort you and me. Because underneath our pretty veneer is a terrified conscience that we don't have what it takes. That when we die, we're going to hell underneath, we're always wrestling with that insecurity. I would say that that's sort of part of the fundamental human problem is our, is our guilt and our, our nervousness about how to deal with it. And all our behaviors, all of our psychology and anthropology can be brought to this one point. And that was the insight of the Reformation. Our consciences are troubled and need relief. And I will tell you, that is the ultimate goal of prayer book worship, is to comfort terrified consciences. It may not always feel like that. It may not always feel like you come in terrified. But if you listen to its voice and what God is doing in that voice, you will hear him speak these words to your soul. And not only do that, but spend, you'll hear him spend some time uncovering the layers and getting to the place where you can say to God honestly, I am really afraid. Deep down, I need Jesus. I will tell you in another way. To translate what the job of the prayer book and scripture and God's word is, is to show us our need for Jesus and then give him to us. Two things. To show us our need for Jesus and then give him to us. That's the goal. That's why we worship in this. That's the theology of the prayer book in a nutshell. That's the theology of the Protestant Reformation in a nutshell. We get confused sometimes because sometimes we think it's, it's about uh, ultimately politics or uh, enlightenment philosophy or whatever we can sort of analyze. And we can psychoanalyze Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer. This is what it boils down to, folks. We are all troubled and need a savior. That's what it's about. That's why the prayer book is uh, what it is, which is why you hear things like the comfortable words. Cranmer called them comfortable words. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is a true and trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
What's the last one? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Those are comforting words. Any of these collects that we pray, they're meant to comfort our souls. They're beautiful. And that kind of gets me into what I want to call uh, the spirituality. I want to talk about just two things before I open it up to questions. Lively faith and the ruts of righteousness. Uh, lively faith. This is this term that gets used by the English reformers again. and They didn't want something that was dead. They believed that faith makes you alive, which means several things. Number one, prayer book worship is worship that's about the heart and addressing the heart, ultimately. Even the external actions are meant just to get through the layers into the heart, which is why I just did a word search of the word heart in our communion liturgy. It comes in there 14 times. Here's some of it. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts in the confession. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry. In the confession, we have not loved thee with our whole heart. In the absolution, all those who with hearty repentance and true faith. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. When you come to the table, you will hear the minister say, say this as uh, he or she gives you the, the bread. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. This liturgy is supposed to be, was envisioned by Cranmer to be something passionate and filled with the emotions and affections that we can muster. It was meant to be lively. We were meant to say the creed as people desperate, hanging on the fact that I do believe that Jesus is all He says He is, that God is all He says He is, that the Spirit is all He says He is. And I need that. We were meant to sort of scream that as our, as our clinging for dear life to the gospel of the Lord. This, this hearty, this fullness, this is what it was about. And then I will tell you what I talk about, the ruts of righteousness. In Psalm 23, it says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. That word might be better translated ruts, because ruts were grooves worn from a well-worn path. If you keep on walking the same path, you eventually find ruts being worn, a divot in the road, which you can kind of feel the boundaries of. I will tell you from personal experience, the liturgy works like this. Have you ever noticed... Uh, let me let me give you the metaphor before I say how it's actual. When the way, when your life is foggy and you can't see the path ahead from you and you don't quite know where God is, the liturgy works like that path. I can't see ahead of me, but my feet can feel the boundaries of these ruts and I know where to take my next step. The liturgy works like that. When you and when I find ourselves yet again blowing it before the Lord on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. I will tell you, here's what happened. Here's what used to happen for me before this liturgy started wearing grooves in my soul. I would feel like I needed to sort of pay penance to God by being really good for the next several days to sort of prove to God, I'm not going to blow it again. I'm really sorry. And I remember as a young teenager, when I would sort of get busted by a teacher, I, I had a sensitive conscience in, in school. When I would get bust by, busted by a teacher for talking in class, I would not speak in class for a week 
to do penance. And it was a heavy, burdensome thing for me to sort of prove to God that I wasn't going to, you know, blow it with my mouth again and that I was exhibiting the fruits of the spirit of self-control, right? When I started worshiping in a tradition that gave me words uh, for when I sinned, a new groove, a new path I started to walk. It was this path. God, I've blown it. Have mercy on me. I need you. Thank you for taking me to the place again where I recognize that I don't have what it takes. Most merciful God, we confess to you in th- that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone. I would confess. And then I would hear the words spoken to me by the pastor. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation as far as the East is from the West. And those were the words of the Holy Spirit. The words of absolution, Almighty God, absolve you of all your sins. I would hear that. And I found rising in my heart a faith and a love of God and others. I will tell you there's nothing else that will grow you and strengthen you in your faith than that. We might think that all our tiresome Christian practices will do that. They are good practices. They will not change you. The gospel alone can change you. And those ruts that are being worn in this pattern of saying the same things every week will come to bless you when you need it most. Any questions? Since college informally, I've never been worshiping consistently a tradition that followed it. So I've, I've always been like this fanboy that's been sneaking it in to where I was at the time uh, in bits and pieces and with the spirit of it. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, sir. This is a little bit of a story about the prayer book and its efficacy. Mm. When I was doing penance at Marion Military Institute for my indiscretions at W and L, wow, we had a we had a delightful circuit riding Episcopal priest who came to St. Wilfred's. He told the story to us of getting a call from one of his Baptist friends and compatriots who said, "Coleman, you guys use this book of common prayer, don't you?" He said, "Yeah." He said. Can I borrow yours? He said, well, of course, you're always welcome to it. He said, what's the occasion? He said, well, so-and-so in my congregation died, and he was the sorriest person that ever lived, and nobody can think of anything nice to say about it, so I'd like to use your burial office. Ah. That's actually, I mean, that's a really, that's funny. It's deep, too. That's really deep, and that's really interesting. That's really interesting. No comment necessarily, but that's brilliant. I like that. Yes. Uh, I have a, a comment and a question. Yeah. Um, my comment is, I think it's so cool when you look at the time period leading up to the Reformation, how many, like, tangential people, how many was not related necessarily to the Reformation, how many people God used to bring the Reformation to be. Yeah. Seemingly not related things. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. It is cool. God's Spirit's great. The second thing I would ask is at a time that, that, and I share your passion for the prayer book and for the stuff you could explore in it, do you fear that the service leaflet that we now use limits that um, possibility in our service? That you don't have the prayer book. No. Uh, 
Good question. I personally actually think it enhances us. I, I mean, the honestly, the goal of the opinion, uh, the goal of the prayer book is to get beyond it to Jesus. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why we went to the leaflet as opposed to flipping was that, as Cranmer said in his introduction to the 1549, which I just talked about last week, he said this, people are so busy flipping that they're, in my translation, not encountering God <laughs> because they're not, they're, they don't know where to go next, you know? And one of the reasons why we get, we wanted to give a tactile book was because the prayer book is still a bit clunky to use in a worship service when you're not an insider. And we want to be a church that's hospitable to outsiders because there's enough barriers with it just being so wordy and everyone's like, whoa, everybody popped up. I guess I need to stand up too, right? And um, so one of the things that we're trying to accomplish is make it an easier in for folks while still being a tactile place. But hopefully that the, the, the leaflet works like a window that's clear rather than a stained glass window where we don't walk out of a service and go, wow, what a beautiful liturgy. We want to walk out of a service and say, what a beautiful Savior. Thank God for Jesus, right? That's the goal of it, is to get out of the way. It's to give us faithful words that come from the heart and then disappears. Uh, you know, so I, that's how I'd kind of answer that question, I think. Any other questions? Last one. Or comments. Well, we're, at, we're at a time with your one book to Ah, well, since I talked about three, and this is totally lame of me, I'm going to give you three books. <laughs> and actually more. But if you're interested more in the history... This is in our bookstore. It's Cummings' uh, Book of Common Prayer. The introduction's great on some of this history. If you're interested in the theology, nothing better than the first chapter of Ashley Knowles' Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance. You read some of the other chapters, you'll get into the, the weeds of medieval Catholicism. But the first chapter is brilliant on just telling you what made Cranmer tick the theologically. And then if you're interested in the spirituality, just what Matt recommended, the Collects of Thomas Cranmer, and then in kind of an exegesis of Cranmer's comfortable words, Ashley Knowles' Divine Allurement. I think all of them, except maybe this one, are in a bookstore. This one's kind of expensive, though. So, hey, friends, come back for this class if you want to know more, you want to experience it, but thank you. Thanks, Zach.